you're listening to the Bridge Christian Fellowship Message Archive. We meet Sundays at 10.30 a.m. in Seattle. For more information, visit thebridgeseattle.org. Today's message is Introduction to the Good Life, the first in our series on the Beatitudes, by Pastor Dan Dameron, given on July 2nd, 2017. The scripture reading comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 4, verse 23, through chapter 5, verse 10. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, so when I was uh, going to Western, I had a roommate named Paul, and one weekend I went home with him, and we went to his mom's citizenship ceremony. So, uh, Paul's mom's parents were part of the evacuation from Dunkirk during World War II, where they got uh, a lot of Polish people and soldiers kind of loading them onto anything that would float and, uh, and evacuated to the British Isles. Um, she was born in England, and then uh, as a child, her parents uh, brought her to the U.S., where she lived most of her life. Uh, when she grew up in the States, she eventually uh, married a guy named Walter Wendler, whose father had been in the German army <coughs> in World War II. Um, so an interesting little coming together there. Uh, and she had lived in the United States for 30 years at the time that she decided to pursue citizenship. citizenship. Uh, so I, I came, came down for the weekend with my roommate, and we went to that ceremony, and it was, it was pretty cool, and it was very, I think, enlightening um, about what the, what the process is and what the excitement level for people who become citizens as opposed to those of us who are born here and don't really think about it at all. You know, it, it can be an arduous process. Um, and it, the, the really interesting thing for me is that I, I asked her when we were later having dinner at, at their house, you know, so it's been 30 years, why, why now? And um, I don't know if that was, you know, maybe there was something else that was sensitive about it, but she just said, ah, it felt like, it felt like time. Um, so we'll come back around here, and we'll see if you think that that story had anything to do with our passage this morning. Um, 
Before we get back to that, though, let's talk about the background uh, of this passage. So here we have kind of in Matthew's gospel, this is the real beginning of his uh, public ministry. Um, and I, I always think it's important for us to say, what was Jesus on earth to do besides the atonement? So we know that he, he came to die for our sins, but he was here for roughly 33 years um, and on a, you know, probably just on a cosmic level, um, if it was just as a sacrifice, could have been probably done a lot more quickly. So uh, I contend that until he was 30, when his, what we call public ministry started, the big thing that he was here to do was to experience life as a human and to identify with us in our humanity, which is an amazing uh, and scandalous act. And then, when he began his um, when he began his public ministry, what he was mainly doing was healing a lot of sick people and preaching the kingdom of God. So that's where we find uh, our passage today. In in verses twenty three through twenty five, he's healing and preaching. He's going all over um, any area that had people of Jewish descent in the general Palestine area, and he's gaining a lot of fame. Uh, and as the crowds start to become really big, he starts retreating from the cities uh, and going into the hills and the wilderness, and the crowds still keep being really big. Uh, we see on the, on the second slide there, it says, seeing the crowds, he took his disciples to teach them. Um, and this is uh, an important part of understanding what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he is doing this to teach his disciples as opposed to the crowds, although that's a little bit of a fuzzy boundary. You know, so you have, uh, in connection-wise to Jesus, you have the, the three, there's the three disciples that he was really tight with as, like, on a friendship level. You have the 12 who were his assigned, sent-out ones. Then you have a, a, a larger group that... Uh, we don't really have numbers for uh, of pretty dedicated disciples who were not in necessarily that inner circle. At, at one point, he sends out uh, 72 of them with uh, a specific mission. Um, but in this setting, we, d we don't know exactly what the breakdown is, but he is formally, it says he sat down, and that's, that is, uh, he sat down and he opened his mouth Maybe in a casual reading we might say, oh, you know, well, he sat down because he was planning on talking for a while, he didn't want to get tired, and he opened his mouth because if you don't, it's very hard to understand. Uh, but these are both uh, phrases that, that represent or, uh, or cue the reader to know that it was a formal teaching thing. This is the, this is the rabbinical style. Uh, so you would, you know, the, the rabbi would sit, and then the uh, most ad advanced disciples would sit right at his feet. Uh, and so this is not a, not a casual thing. This, this is an organized, decided thing that Jesus is doing to, to teach the disciples that are already committed, uh, but as I said, with a fuzzy boundary. So the crowds are still following. They're still out there. And, and perhaps this is the thing when they hear when they get to hear 
the teaching that's specifically for the disciples, then they can maybe decide whether they are going to become committed disciples or whether they're going to keep just falling around to, to see the show, which is largely uh, what the crowds were doing. As I always say, there was no cable, so yeah, watch this guy. <clears throat> In this setting, um, he opens up what we call the Sermon on the Mount with what we call the Beatitudes, a series of statements that start with blessed are. And this word blessed, uh, in the Greek, it's makarios, uh, it's equivalent of the Aramaic azre, and if you think my Greek pronunciation is bad, my Aramaic pronunciation is, uh, I don't even know how bad it is, because I have no idea. But e either of these words could be translated as, as fortunate or well-off. Uh, I think it's interesting or important to compare these statements, where Jesus says, blessed are, uh, with kind of the Greek uh, philosophical setting. So Jesus is saying, here's the good life. The good life is when you're like this. And the, in the Greek setting, which is the, the underpinnings of, of the Roman Empire's intellectual culture, what they talked about was arete, excellence. Excellence consists of this. And, you know, and so what they're more concerned about is being uh, admired, uh, and what Jesus is presenting as the, the balances of life is, wh what does it mean to have the good life? So you know, in some translations you'll see, happy are those who do this. Especially if you translate it as happy are those, then these statements become very counterintuitive, uh, because you have, uh, you know, as one of them, in fact, Happy are those who mourn. That seems like a direct clash. Uh, and, and for all of these things, they're extremely against the flow of the culture at the time. So it opens up with, with blessed are the poor in spirit, and that's, um, for the Greeks and Romans, probably the most despised thing. Like, to be, uh, to be meek, to be, to be poor in spirit, to, to not grab for all that you're worth, not only does it, is it kind of confusing, but it's, it's despicable. It means that you are not, you're not even trying. Um, here, here I go always with the, the sports analogies, but like if you're, if you're playing a game and, and somebody on your team is not even trying, that's what makes you mad, right? You, you maybe don't expect the people on your team to all be good at whatever sport you're doing, but if, if they're just not even trying, then you get angry. And so, <clears throat> yeah, not only are these series of statements confusing for, um, for somebody with the Greek or Roman mindset, they are actively offensive. For us, as we look at these, I, I think it's important that we not look at them as a new general list of laws. Uh, some, some commentators have... Uh, have described the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount as a whole as the, the elevated Mosaic law. So Mosaic law didn't quite cut it. Here comes Jesus to give the new improved law. Um, but if we understand the Sermon on the Mount that way, then we're just going to get crushed. You know, so uh, you have the, the Pharisaic tradition, which was probably the height of trying to follow the law in a, in a microcosmic way. Um, and then Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. 
Uh, a lot of you have heard me a lot. A high percentage of this group has, has heard me talk about the bleeding Pharisees. So this is a subset of the Pharisees who, whenever they went out into the, a public setting, would wear a blindfold because they didn't want to see a, a woman, you know, in her fairly close to burqa clothes, you know, maybe catch a glimpse of her foot and, and lust. So they wore a blindfold when they went out in public, and they, were just, and they were called the bleeding Pharisees because if you walk through a market wearing a blindfold, you crash into the wall and you gash your head or you kick something and cut your foot and there's animals, you know, at this time and get kicked by a horse. So in terms of if you're just going to say, hey, here's a new elevated law and we're going to follow it, it just, it just would destroy you. Um, I got a lot of quotes this morning. So the first one is by a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas, who's, uh, who's at Duke. And he says, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 is unintelligible if it is isolated from its context within Matthew's gospel. The Sermon on the Mount cannot help but become a law or an ethic if what is taught is abstracted from the teacher. But the sermon, therefore, is not a list of requirements, but rather a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. A guy, a British guy who's now dead, named Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you must not take the separate injunctions and say this is to be applied. That is not the way to look at it. What is inculcated is that I should be in such a spirit that under certain circumstances and conditions, I must do just that, throw in the cloak or go the second mile. This is no mechanical rule to be applied, but I am such a person that if it is God's will and for his glory, I do so readily. What they're saying is there are, there are examples later in the Sermon on the Mount of specific, um, specific instances, or as Lloyd-Jones calls them, injunctions to do a certain thing. And it's tempting for many people to grab those out, you know, and to, uh, as he talks specifically about the, the turn the other cheek. And so they just grab that, and they run for the hills with uh, a radical pacifism, which may or may not be the the right choice, and we talk about that in another setting. But the point is, you, you don't get to just grab one of those out until you have sat and marinated in the Beatitudes. Uh, the other thing that these are not are kind of pie-in-the-sky ideals that nobody should really be expected to uh, see happen. So some have interpreted this as the description of the future kingdom age. So after the second coming, or in heaven, this is what it'll look like then. But if that's the case, why would Jesus be telling it to them uh, at that time? And, you know, this was the formal teaching of a rabbi to his disciples of this is what we're about. And I think something that's helpful if you, if you do want to describe it as um, the, the way of life for the kingdom age is that Sure, it is, and the kingdom is what is often called the already but not yet. So the kingdom is where the king is. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, you can understand that as it's about to come around, or, and I think more, uh, there's a certain amount of truth to that, but more importantly, the kingdom of God is at hand the way that you want your wrench at hand when you're working on a piece of machinery. It's right there, so that as soon as you stretch out, it's to be grasped. The kingdom is not uh, manifest in its fullness yet, but the kingdom is here because the king is here. 
and the spirit of Jesus dwelling in us means that the kingdom is wherever we go around as long as we are dwelling in him. What I would suggest the, the best way of understanding this, and I didn't make this up myself, but I can't remember exactly where I got <laughs> this phrase, but it's a civics lesson for life in the kingdom of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the followers of Jesus are no longer faced with a decision. The only decision possible for them has already been made. Now they have to be what they are, or they're not following Jesus. So, uh, yeah, we don't have to say, how should I approach the world? We've made that decision uh, in coming to Christ, uh, and now we live in this manner, uh, or we're not being really who we are. Again, Stanley Harawas says, uh, and it, it is not presumed that everyone who's a follower of Jesus will possess each beatitude. Rather, the gifts named in the beatitudes suggest that the diversity of these gifts will be present in the community of those who have heard Jesus' call to discipleship. I agree with him about 80%. I agree more with this next quote from Lloyd-Jones, uh, which is going to seem like it's directly opposed, but I'll bring it, I'll hopefully bring it back together. Uh, each one of these, the Beatitudes, in a sense demand the others. It is impossible to truly manifest one of these graces and to conform to the blessing that is pronounced upon it without inevitably showing the others also. The Beatitudes are a complete whole and you cannot divide them. So that, whereas one of them may be more manifest in one person than in another, all of them are there. Yeah, so you have these two uh, big brain theologians, saying, one saying, hey, you're not going to have all of them, but they'll be present in the community. The other guy saying, you can't help but have all of them if you have any of them. I think, smashing those things together, that each of us is called to possess each of the traits or gifts that are described in the Beatitudes and that each of us has been given the gift of the Spirit so that we can be all of these things. However, we won't attain maturity in these things, or anything, at the same, uh, at the same rate or at the same level. Um, life isn't like uh, elementary school where you just move up and move up uh, because, the, because the school year ended. We, uh, we come back around to some lessons again and again, uh, we excel in some areas while we lag behind in others. So it's the gift of community that we are able to be Jesus to the rest of the body as we show forth certain areas to a high degree, even as we struggle to uh, display one of the other areas. As I said before, everything else that comes in the Sermon on the Mount, so talking about turning the other cheek, uh, going the second mile, all of those things are only comprehensible in the context of individuals who are pursuing and practicing the Beatitudes in the midst of a community that is living them out. What does that, what does that look like for us in our little part of the community? Well, we are called to be poor, meek, mourning, hungry and thirsty, merciful, poor, pure in heart, peacemakers, and to be persecuted. And not only persecuted, but wrongly persecuted. Um, this, this doesn't sound blessed or happy or fun. We're going to spend most of the summer <laughs> trying to figure out how, that, how they can be in, interpreted in that way. Um, a caveat at the beginning of looking at these things 
uh, coming from Martin Lloyd-Jones again, is that none of these descriptions refers to what we may call a natural tendency. So it's tempting sometimes to see somebody who um, maybe by their personality is meek and isn't, you know, isn't starting fights and say, oh, well, good job, you've got that there. But we, we have to understand these things uh, as opposed to our starting point, for one thing, uh, and that these are to a level that in our, in our natural humanity we are not going to attain. They're also not the things that we have been, been trained or inculcated to do or to pursue in our culture, very similarly to the ways that the original hearers weren't trained to pursue them in the, in the Greek or Roman culture. What these are are the customs and practices of a new citizenship. So at, at times I've worked with a lot of international students, and what that means is that when the World Cup comes around, they get very excited, whereas most of the people in the US don't get excited. And <clears throat> when the World Cup comes around, it becomes very clear where your real citizenship lies, because the colors, <clears throat> the colors come out, the, the kits. I gotta say that, because if Ryan hears it, and I said like, actually, one of the things, this is a total aside, one of the things I really like about Ryan, even though he is like, you know, a huge soccer fan and a, a really highly skilled soccer coach is that he doesn't jump all over you if you say like uniform instead of kit or field instead of pitch. Totally off topic. This point might even be a little bit off topic. But yeah, in the, in the World Cup, everybody, uh, everybody who's here for a short time, you know, as an international student, that's really their time for their, for their national pride to come out. Now, one of the things for, uh, for U.S. citizens is that typically the U.S. is not really in contention, and so most people that I know, most American citizens who get excited about the World Cup, they've got, their second team is really what they've got. So they, they may not even have a jersey for the U.S. national team, because they, they figure, you know, I would get to wear that for like just the first week. I, I better get my second team up there. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, there's, there's no having your second team jersey. There, there is no dual citizenship. This is an interesting thing about the United States also, is that there really, uh, there really isn't dual citizenship. So one of the things that I learned when I went to Paul's mom's ceremony is they had this giant group of people, like 100 people, um, in unison give this oath. So this is what you have to do if, if you're a naturalized citizen. You have to say, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. So, 
A lot of other countries don't uh, stop recognizing the citizenship of somebody who, who emigrates and becomes naturalized as an American citizen. But by the structure of American citizenship, the US does not recognize any dual citizenship. Likewise, the kingdom of God does not recognize dual citizenship. There's the kingdom of the world and there's the kingdom of heaven. And you have to decide where is your loyalty? Where is your identity? When you come to Christ, you entirely and absolutely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any group or power which you have heretofore been a subject or citizen of. The other important thing for us to think about uh, as we try to live out the Beatitudes is that they, <clears throat> as they are represented in our community, they are the proof, Jesus says, of what he was preaching. So in, in what's often called the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus publicly praying uh, out loud before his, uh, the apostles um, says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that I also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. As we are now not of the world, the way that we represent that, the way we represent unity with one another and unity with God, is the way that the world knows that the Father sent the Son. Jesus doesn't say, because I've done all these miracles, because I've healed all these people, because I've cast out demons, because I've done any of these things that the people will know uh, that what he's saying is true, that his mission is uh, ratified. He doesn't say, because there's going to be a thunderous voice for heaven or a fingertip writing on the face of the moon or any kind of the crazy things we wish might happen. He says the way that we live, the citizenship customs and practices of this new kingdom are going to be the thing that proves whether or not what he was saying was true. So, we have our questions for the week. And we'll, um, I'll read out and we'll spend a minute thinking about and then hopefully spend some more time uh, throughout the week. Um, number one, as, as you encounter the Beatitudes, and this is also a, uh, a way of thinking about the way that we approach all of Scripture. Do you tend to err on the side of upgraded law or unattainable ideals when you read the Beatitudes? Either one of them takes us out of uh, something that really impacts our day-to-day -day life. Number two, do you feel like you are exemplifying some of these traits or gifts? And contrawise, do you feel like some are particularly tough for you? And number three, in the context that we understand that we're only able to fully live any of these things out 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the things the Holy Spirit will do is enable us to take one concrete step. What's one that we could do this week that would help you to better exemplify one of the Beatitudes? So yeah, take a minute and maybe particularly if one of the questions resonates more than the others. So wrapping up, we find ourselves as citizens of a new kingdom. And some of us have been here longer than others. But we need to decide, uh, are we going to, like Paul's mom, spend decades of not quite committing, spending the time being in but not really connected, or do we truly become citizens? Do we take the maybe arduous process uh, of, of becoming citizens of the kingdom of God? When we think about this, it's not easy. All of these things are counterintuitive from what the culture tells us, from what our desires tell us. And we w might wonder, how could anyone who lives like this be envied be thought of as blessed. The kingdom isn't for the timid, but those who truly become citizens, who live like this, who are full members of his kingdom, will see God. And that's pretty incredible. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is only through your spirit that any of these things are comprehensible or attainable. So I pray that today uh, and for the next couple of months as we look at these things, that you would, you would open the eyes of our hearts and that you would empower us by your spirit um, to see how we can live like this and, and thereby how we can impact the world for you. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. To find out more about The Bridge or to listen to any message from our complete archive, visit thebridgeseattle.org.